Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black. Thrilled to be with you on this snowy December day. I begin today in some physical distress. I don't know how this happened, but last night, no, I guess I woke up yesterday morning in pain, pain. It feels like one, like, like I pulled a terrible muscle in a place where I didn't know I had a muscle, which is sort of the top of my butt, but leading around to my back and I, I, I was, I was, I was holding firewood around. Maybe that's what did it. But it has, it has resulted in many utterances and swears and groans as I've been hobbling around the house. Low these past two days, it's like I have a like just a big stitch up in my all up in my left side, and you know, it is uncomfortable. And I don't like to complain to my wife about it because she has no sympathy for me uh, ever. And so I didn't even say anything about it for the first 24 hours or so. But then, you know, eventually it just became abundantly clear that I was in pain. And I just explained that I was in pain. And And she was the one who said it might have been from the firewood. And she might be right. But there certainly wasn't any sympathy attached to it. And that's because I'm not very good at giving sympathy either, but she complains a lot more than I do, right? Like we'll be hiking in the woods. Say we're with the dogs and we're hiking in the woods and she trips on a rock and doesn't fall, but almost falls, right? Or not even almost falls, but like, you know, does that thing where you trip on a rock and then you recover. And then she'll say, did you see that? I could have fallen down and fractured my skull. I could have been paralyzed for the rest of my life. Did you see that? 
And I'll say, yeah, I saw that, but that didn't happen. And then she'll get mad at me because I'm not showing proper sympathy to what might have happened if she had fallen down and hit her head or broken her neck or whatever, but nothing happened. Whereas I am in, I basically have one foot in the grave right now, but I dare not say anything because if I, if I utter a complaint, it will be met with derision and scorn. And I can't handle psychological pain in addition to my physical suffering, which is severe. And look, I don't expect any sympathy from you people either. You're here to be entertained. So let me just endure. Let me just wrap myself up and suffer in silence. You won't hear a word about it again during this episode. I'm opening up Frankenstein here. We're in the middle of hearing about poor, wretched Justine Moritz, uh, a member of the household who has contracted whatever the mother had, scarlet fever or consumption or something, whatever it was, whatever that killed the mother, Justine had it. Elizabeth is writing to Frankenstein. She's relating the story. And then Frankenstein, I guess, is relating the story to Walton. Then Walton is relating the story to us. It's very fourth hand and kind of annoying. But the story of Justine Moritz, let's see what happens with her. Poor Justine was very ill, but other trials were reserved for her. So I guess we're going to find out what those trials were. So again, this is Elizabeth writing to Victor, recalling to Walton, who's telling us, stupid. It's stupid. It's a stupid way to write a book. Mary. One by one, her brothers and sisters died. Yeah, well, I have a stitch in my side. I mean, it sucks for you, Justine, but I have a stitch in my side. It makes it difficult to move around. And her mother, with the exception of her neglected daughter, was left childless. The conscience of the woman was troubled. Remember, this is the woman who hated Justine. Like she just hated for some, some, and Mary calls it a perversity. For some reason, she hates her own daughter. Nobody knows why. So she basically gave her away to Frankenstein's mother. The conscience of the woman was troubled. She began to think that the deaths of her favorites were a judgment from heaven to chastise her partiality. She was a Roman Catholic, and I believe her confessor confirmed the idea which she had conceived. So the kids died, and you know she goes to confession, and she's like, God, what if like it was me who killed my kids because, you know, and God is punishing me? And the confessor's like, yeah, sounds right. Sounds like, yeah, you're probably responsible for their deaths. So anyway, go with God. Um, And you know who else felt this way? Sue Bridehead. Sue Bridehead, when her kids died, felt the same immense guilt and felt like God was punishing her for turning her back on God. I mean, different reasons why somebody might be punished. But, you know, we've been here before. We've been down this road before with different characters. Accordingly, A few months after your departure for Ingolstadt, Justine was called home by her repentant mother. Poor girl. She wept when she quitted our house. She was much altered since the death of my aunt. Grief had given softness and a winning mildness to her manners, which had before been remarkable for vivacity. Nor was her residence at her mother's house of a nature to restore 
her gaiety. No, I wouldn't think so. When your brothers and sisters die and your mother hates you and brings you home out of guilt, I suspect it's not going to restore your gaiety. The poor woman was very vacillating in her repentance. She sometimes begged Justine to forgive her unkindness, but much oftener accused her of having caused the deaths of her brothers and sister. Right. If you didn't make me hate you, God wouldn't have punished me for hating you. You know, the logic is irrefutable. Perpetual fretting at length threw Madame Moritz into a decline, which at first increased her irritability, but she is now at peace forever. She died on the first approach of cold weather at the beginning of this last winter. Justine has returned to us, and I assure you, I love her tenderly. She is very clever and gentle and extremely pretty. As I mentioned before, her her mien and her expressions continually remind me of my dear aunt. I must also say a few words to you, my dear cousin, of little darling William. Who's William? I forget who people are. I mean, you know, Frankenstein's been away for a long time. I forget who people are. I wish you could see him. He is very tall of his age, with sweet, laughing blue eyes, dark eyelashes, and curling hair. When he smiles, two little dimples appear on each cheek, which are rosy with health. He has already had one or two little wives, but Louisa Byron is his favorite. Louisa Byron sounds to me a lot like Lord Byron. I don't know. I don't know if that's intentional or not. Louisa Byron, B-I-R-O-N, is his favorite, a pretty little girl of five years of age. Now, dear Victor, I dare say you wish to be indulged in a little gossip concerning the good people of Geneva. The pretty Miss Mansfield has already received the congratulatory visits of her approaching marriage with a young Englishman, John Melbourne Esquire. Her ugly sister, Manon, married Monsieur Duvillard, D-U-V-I-L-L-A-R-D, Duvillard, I'll say it like that, Duvillard, the rich banker last autumn. Your favorite schoolfellow, Louis Manois, has suffered misfortunes. His favorite schoolfellow is Henry Clerville. Come on, Elizabeth, his favorite schoolfellow is Henry Clerville and no other. We've never heard of Louis Manoir, has suffered misfortunes since the departure of Clerville from Geneva. But he has already recovered his spirits and is reported to be on the point of marrying a very lively, pretty Frenchwoman, Madame Tavarnier. She is a widow and much older than Manoir, but she is very much admired and a favorite with everybody. I have written myself into better spirits, dear cousin, but my anxiety returns upon me as I conclude. Write, dearest Victor, one line, one word will be a blessing to us. Ten thousand thanks to Henry for his kindness, his affection, and his many letters. We are sincerely grateful. Adieu, my cousin. Take care of yourself, and I entreat you, write. Elizabeth Lavenza, Geneva, March 18th, 17 dash. Okay, so that is the letter in its entirety spread out over two episodes of Obscure Here from Cousin Elizabeth, his, you know, more than cousin, to Victor Frankenstein. And I have no idea why that letter is in this book. 
I mean, maybe all will become apparent in time, but it seems like a lot of words to achieve very little. Why am I hearing about Justine Moritz? I understand there will be more about Justine Moritz in the future. Why am I hearing gossip about Geneva? Why do I care who's marrying who and who has misfortunes and who's pretty and who's ugly? I don't. There's a monster on the loose in Ingolstadt. An eight-foot-tall big buddy is roaming around Ingolstadt somewhere. Nobody has seen it. Nobody has come across it. Nobody has mentioned it for pages upon pages. Winter has turned into spring, and still there is a monster on the loose. Why is that not everything in this book? It's all I care about. I care about the monster. I want to know about the monster. I want to know if it eats people. I want to know what it's doing. But instead, I've been treated to a lengthy letter from Cousin Elizabeth, who, in fairness, seems very dear, right? Like, we like Elizabeth. Okay, she, you know, if she were to come over for high tea, we would entertain her with cucumber sandwiches. We would be enthralled at all the juicy Geneva gossip. Like we would just want it. We would just be on the edges of our seats. Even if we were in considerable pain because we had a stitch in our side, we would be on the edges of our seats listening to pretty Elizabeth unspool stories of society. But the fact of the matter is there is an emergency and nobody's talking about it. So let's get back to it. The letter is over and let's hear what Victor Frankenstein has to say about it. Dear, dear Elizabeth, I exclaimed when I had read her letter, I will write instantly and relieve them from the anxiety they must feel. I wrote, and this exertion greatly fatigued me but my convalescence had commenced and proceeded regularly. In another fortnight, I was able to leave my chamber. So he writes. We don't know what he writes. And then two weeks later, he leaves his bedroom. (sighs) You know, this book better get better. I'm just saying it better get better. It has to improve. Where is the action? Where is the drama? There's no romance. There's no suspense. Nothing is happening. Like, we spent so many pages on Walton, so many pages on Frankenstein's backstory, about a page and a half on him building Frankenstein, another page on Frankenstein coming to laugh to life, and now all of this shit. Get me to the heart of darkness. That's what I want. Get me there. Get me to the tragedies. Get me to the deaths. Get me to the bloodletting. Get me to screams in the middle of the night. I thought this was a horror story. And so far, it's not horror. It's only horrible. (laughs) It's not horrible. But I'm not loving it. One of my first duties on my recovery was to introduce Clerval to the several professors of the university. In doing this, I underwent a kind of rough usage, ill-befitting the wounds that my mind had sustained. Ever since the fatal night, the end of my labors, and the beginning of my misfortunes, I had conceived a violent antipathy even to the name of natural philosophy. When I was otherwise quite restored to health, the sight of a chemical instrument would renew all the agony of my nervous symptoms. Henry saw this and had removed all my apparatus from my view. He had also changed my apartment, for he perceived that I had acquired a dislike for the room which had previously been my laboratory. 
But these cares of Clerval were made of no avail when I visited the professors. Monsieur Waldman inflicted torture when he praised with kindness and warmth the astonishing progress I had made in the sciences. He soon perceived that I disliked the subject, but not guessing the real cause, he attributed my feelings to modesty and changed the subject from my improvement to the science itself, with a desire, as I evidently saw, of drawing me out. What could I do? He meant to please, and he tormented me. I felt as if he had placed carefully, one by one, in my view, those instruments which were to be afterwards used in putting me to a slow and cruel death. Okay, so I'm just going to backtrack for a second. Because in the last episode, I ta- you know, he talked about how he, you know, he basically suffered a fit, right? A nervous fever, and he was waylaid for months in the winter. He just like couldn't get out of bed. And he talked about it as a quote unquote fatal passion, right? And I said, What the hell do you mean? It wasn't fatal. You're recovering, dude. Like that's the whole point. You recovered. It wasn't fatal. But now here he says again. Uh, I felt as if he had placed carefully one by one in my view those instruments which were to be afterwards used in putting me to a slow and cruel death. So I think what he means by this fatal passion isn't so much that it killed him in the moment, although it seems to very nearly have done so, and it was only Clerval who restored him to health, but I think he means uh, that over time, those instruments of science and the knowledge of natural philosophy inflicted on him a kind of poisoning, you know, like a radiation poisoning that got into his blood and even as he stood there in front of his beloved professor was killing him, was destroying him from the inside. And he basically says that, you know, to Walton when Walton fishes him out of the ice up there on the edge of the universe and says, you know, that's the whole point is don't do what I done, kid. Hey, kid, don't do what I done. Because you're going to end up like me, dying a slow and cruel death out here on the ice flows of the North Pole. So that's what he means. But the other thing that was funny to me is, um, he says, he soon perceived that I disliked the subject, but not guessing the real cause, (laughs) as if he would guess, wait a minute, I see that you're uh, uncomfortable here. Did you, by any chance... And I'm just spitballing here. Victor, did you happen to make an eight-foot-tall reanimated corpse with the knowledge that I taught you? It would have been very funny if he had guessed that, but he didn't. All right, what do you say we take a little break? Okay, back to the book. I writhed under his words, meaning uh, Waldman's words, yet dared not exhibit the pain I felt. Yes, exactly, because if you exhibit pain, people make fun of you. They say, oh, you're not really hurt. You know, you just move some firewood around. You're not really hurt. You just have a little stitch in your side that's that's had you hobbling for two days. Go shovel the sidewalk. But I'm in pain. I don't care. Go shovel the sidewalk. Clerval whose eyes and feelings were always quick in discerning the sensations of others, declined the subject, alleging in excuse his total ignorance, and the conversation took a more general turn. I thanked my friend 
from my heart, but I did not speak. I saw plainly that he was surprised, but he never attempted to draw my secret from me. And although I loved him with a mixture of affection and reverence that knew no bounds, yet I could not persuade myself to confide to him that event which was so often present to my recollection, but which I feared the detail to another would only impress more deeply. M. Krempe was not equally docile. Mr. Carter, Mr. Krempe, why you gotta be so mean, Mr. Krempe? And in my condition at that time of almost insupportable sensitiveness, his harsh, blunt encomiums gave me even more pain than the benevolent approbation of M. Waldman. D.N. the fellow, cried he. This is, I don't know what that means. D-N. the fellow. Oh, damn, I think is what he's saying. I think she's abbreviating the word damn so that she doesn't have to write a, a cuss. Damn the fellow, cried he. Why, Mr. Clerval, I assure you, he has outstripped us all. Aye, stare if you please, but... I guess he's Mr. Cata. Uh, stare if you please, but it is nevertheless true. A youngster who but a few years ago believed in Cornelius Agrippa as firmly as in the gospel has now set himself at the head of the university, and if he is not soon pulled down, we shall all be out of countenance. Aye, aye, continued he observing my face expressive of suffering. Monsieur Frankenstein is modest, an excellent quality in a young man. In, in, in my mind now, M. Crimpy has gone from uh, Mr. Cotter almost to Wallace Shawn. Mr. Crimpy, <laughs> Monsieur Frankenstein is modest, an excellent quality in a young man. Young men should be diffident of themselves. You know, uh, Monsieur Clerval, I was myself when young, but that wears out in a very short time. Monsieur Crimpy had now commenced a eulogy on himself, which happily turned the conversation from a subject that was so annoying to me. Clerval, had never sympathized in my tastes for natural science, and his literary pursuits differed wholly from those which had occupied me. He came to the university with the design of making himself complete master of the Oriental languages, as thus he should open a field for the plan of life he had marked out for himself. Resolved to pursue no inglorious career, he turned his eyes towards the east as affording scope for his spirit of enterprise. The Persian, Arabic, and Sanskrit languages engaged his attention, and I was easily induced to enter on the same studies. Idleness had ever been irksome to me, and now that I wished to fly from reflection and hated my former studies, I felt great relief in being the fellow pupil with my friend, and found not only instruction but consolation in the works of the Orientalists. I did not, like him, attempt a critical knowledge of their dialects, for I did not contemplate making any other use of them than temporary amusement. I read merely to understand their meaning, and they well repaid my labors. Their melancholy is soothing, and their joy elevating, to a degree I never experienced in studying the authors of any other country. 
When you read their writings, life appears to consist in a warm sun, in a garden of roses, in the smiles and frowns of a fair enemy, in the fire that consumes your own heart. How different from the manly and heroical poetry of Greece and Rome. So, what the hell does Mary Shelley know about the Persian, Arabic, and Sanskrit languages? I mean, I believe it. I believe what she's saying. I'm just curious how she came about this knowledge and why she, uh, like, did, was she, did she have some mastery of other languages that I do not know about? Or was this, you know, purely a kind of contrivance uh, on her part as an author for Victor Frankenstein? I don't know. Um, but what is clear is there is a criticism of Western culture that we've seen time and again, or at least time and time, from Mary Shelley. In this case, the manly and heroical poetry of Greece and Rome, which although she's not necessarily putting it down for its own sake, she's saying there's something maybe a little too stoic, a little bit too uh, glinty-eyed about it, and she prefers the warm words of, as she calls them, the Orientalists. So, it just an, it's just an interesting side note and, and, and probably worth exploring more. I wonder what, historically speaking, was going on at that time in terms of the relationship uh, between, let's say, the Far East, China, Japan, and where she was in Switzerland or, you know, England, just the West. I'm just curious as to what was going on at that time. You know, because there have been periods in history of Western fascination with Eastern culture. In some ways, we're living in one now. And in some ways, the East is fascinated with the West. How, how fascinated we all are with each other. Oh, it's wonderful. Summer passed away in these occupations, and my return to Geneva was fixed for the latter end of autumn. But being delayed by several accidents, winter and snow arrived, the roads were deemed impassable, and my journey was retarded until the ensuing spring. I felt this delay very bitterly, for I longed to see my native town and my beloved friends." My return had only been delayed so long from an unwillingness to leave Clerval in a strange place before he had become acquainted with any of its inhabitants. The winter, however, was spent cheerfully, and although the spring was uncommonly late, when it came, its beauty compensated for all its dilatoriness. Uh, okay, so, I mean, a year is going by here. Clerval shows up, uh, they study languages together. They do a lot of reading. And then he plans on going home, but he can't because he doesn't want to leave Clerval. And then the snow comes and then he's delayed and then spring comes and it's wonderful. It's springtime for Frankie in Ingolstadt. The month of May had already commenced and I expected the letter daily, which was to fix the date of my departure when Henry proposed a pedestrian tour in the environs of Ingolstadt, that I might bid a personal farewell to the country I had so long inhabited. I acceded with pleasure 
to this proposition. I was fond of exercise, and Clerval had always been my favorite companion in the rambles of this nature that I had taken among the scenes of my native country. So basically, Henry said, you want to go for a walk? And he was like, yeah. We passed a fortnight in these perambulations. My health and spirits had long been restored, and they gained additional strength from the salubrious air I breathed, the natural incidents of our progress, and the conversation of my friend. Study had before secluded me from the intercourse of my fellow creatures and rendered me unsocial. He said intercourse, perv. What a perv, he said, intercourse. He again taught me to love the aspect of nature in the cheerful faces of children. Excellent friend, how sincerely did you love me and endeavor to elevate my mind until it was on a level with your own? A selfish pursuit had cramped and narrowed me until your gentleness and affection warmed and opened my senses. I became the same happy creature who a few years ago, loved and beloved by all, had no sorrow or care. When happy, inanimate nature had the power of bestowing on me the most delightful sensations. A serene sky and verdant fields filled me with ecstasy. The present season was indeed divine. The flowers of spring bloomed in the hedges, while those of summer were already in bud. I was undisturbed by thoughts which during the preceding year had pressed upon me, notwithstanding my endeavors to throw them off with an invincible burden. Henry rejoiced... Okay, the chapter's about to end. Good. Uh, Henry rejoiced in my gaiety and sincerely sympathized in my feelings. He exerted himself to amuse me while he expressed the sensations that filled his soul. The resources of his mind on this occasion were truly astonishing. His conversation was full of imagination, and very often, in imitation of the Persian and Arabic writers, he invented tales of wonderful fancy and passion. Henry, that is cultural appropriation. You're canceled. At other times... He repeated my favorite poems or drew me out into arguments which he supported with great ingenuity. We returned to our college on a Sunday afternoon. The peasants were dancing and everyone we met appeared gay and happy. My own spirits were high and I bounded along with feelings of unbridled joy and hilarity. End chapter six. I mean... Who cares? Who cares? They went for a walk. It was great. I thought they were going to go for a walk and there would be the creature. Nope. They went for a walk and it was great. I mean, what is that? What is that? Why am I reading this? What is happening? Nothing. Nothing. He's happy. Henry's happy. Uh, uh, He's planning on going home. It got delayed. So they went for a walk and now he's home. He's back in Ingolstadt and he's, he's going to go home. Okay, okay. I mean, we're how far into, we're halfway through the book. We're halfway nearly halfway through the book. And well, maybe not. No, no. Wait. I mean, there's not. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, about a third. Let's say a third of the way through the book and nothing is happening. <sighs> like the big event. 
The big event took forever to happen. It happened and it was dispensed with in two pages. Why am I enduring physical pain to sit here and read a book into a microphone? Terrible physical distress. Terrible, terrible, horrible physical distress. I may not even survive to the next episode. Why, why am I doing that? For your entertainment? Sure. But for my own entertainment as well. And if I don't like the book, like, that's not entertaining. I feel like I'm slurring my words. That's not entertaining. So will it pick up? It has to. I mean, it's a classic. It has to pick up. It has to. I'm trusting the judgment of readers from generations before me that this book is excellent. I've seen little evidence of it to this point, but I'm going to trust readers better equipped than myself to make those judgments. So I hope you will stay with me. Maybe my annoyance is entertaining. I don't know. It's not entertaining to me. It's annoying. But stick with me, won't you? We're going to get through this together. We're on a journey. We're going to end up in the North Pole. We know that. And it will be exciting. We know there's going to be a monster racing across the ice. And it will be a thrill ride when we get there. It just might take us a little bit longer. So hang tight and join me again on another mildly diverting episode of Obscure. But until then, like Elizabeth to her cousin Victor Frankenstein, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Mary Shimkin, Jennifer Brennan, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original theme music by Craig Wedren. If you would like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, where not only will you be receiving every single episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein way before the general public hears them, but you'll also get bonus episodes, uh, writings, musings, jokes aplenty, and if you sign up to our highest tier, you get to join the semi-regular book club, which we hold every now and again. It's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black.